Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Amy Thompson, Professor of Applied Linguistics at West Virginia University. Dr. Thompson, thank you so much for taking the time to come on Lost in Citations. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Now, would you like to introduce yourself with your full job title and description? Sure, I can. So I'm currently a professor of applied linguistics at West Virginia University. Um, I'm the chair of the Department of World Languages, Literatures, and Linguistics, and I'm also the director of international relations and strategic planning for Eberly College of Arts and Sciences. That sounds like three jobs in one. It is that and more, I can guarantee. Oh, wow. So pretty (laughs) stretched thin or adequately stretched thin? (laughs) Well, it has its moments of um, like thinking about what in the world did I get myself into? But mostly it's very enjoyable. Now, when you got offered this position, was that that the package or have they added things to your plate? When I was hired at WVU in 2018, it was to be chair of the Department of World Languages, Literatures, and Linguistics. Um, the director of international relations and strategic planning for Everly uh, was added this past summer. Wow. Well, that's that's the consequences of doing good work, for better or for worse, right? People want to keep I giving suppose. you more. That's right. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. All right. Well, the book that we will be discussing today is The Role of Context in Language Learner Learners' Self-Development and Motivation. And this was published by our good friends over at Multilingual Matters. And this is also part of the book series, Psychology of Language Learning and Teaching. For those of you that have been listening to the podcast, previous episodes have included Sarah Mercer and Stephen Ryan. And this, I'm looking at the book now, uh, number 13 in the series. So that's that's a while ago, right? I mean, how many how many books? I don't know. Are you caught up on how many books are in this series? It's a lot, right? Uh, no, I don't know off the top of my head, no. Um, but it's an awesome series, and uh, they keep adding to the collection, and all of them are, are really great reads. And uh, once I found out about this series, I was really excited because it kind of fits into the, the things that I like to research. When, when you were thinking about writing the book, did you think about this series right away, or uh, were you thinking about other publishers as well? No, I mean, I was pretty sure that I wanted to publish with Multilingual Matters as soon as I started conceptualizing the book. And and this series specifically is a really good fit just because of the subject matter. But I like, um, interestingly, like the reason I got so enthusiastic about Multilingual Matters as a publishing company is I loved kind of the the equity perspective they put on accessibility of their texts. Mm. And so as a graduate student, um, I could not afford to buy a lot of books, but I wanted books, Mm -hmm. (laughs) as we all do, right? Um, And they were the first publishing house at major conferences to offer any book in in whatever series um, for $20. And so even as a graduate student, I was able to purchase, let's say, like I would save my money and like save up a hundred dollars and I could buy five books with that amount of money. And so I always visited their booth and I always talked um, to the folks who were working um, like the, you know, the series editors, mm-hmm. the, sorry, the series editors and also the the editors of the of multilingual matters themselves. And I just, I, I just knew that I wanted my material to be accessible to the as wide as an audience as possible, including folks like students who may not have money to purchase a book for a hundred dollars or sixty dollars or whatever it is. So mm-hmm. I, I I do really like 
that aspect of multilingual matters as a publishing house in general. And so they were my first choice. Luckily, they liked my proposal and felt that they also wanted to publish the, the book with them. Now, for people that have been listening to the podcast, they probably already know this, but the Psychology of Language Learning and Teaching series is is kind of situated under the umbrella of the International Association for the Psychology of Language Learning. Um, so when did you get involved with that group? Um, that has been um, almost at the inception of the concept of that organization. So mm. um, I believe not not ve- not very first. I think it was a, a, few, a couple years, maybe three or three years, maybe after it started. But um, I'm on the executive board of that group as well, which means that we're involved in uh, reviewing articles for the that uh, organization specific journal that we run and also organizing the conferences, which in the best of times, meaning not in pandemic times, it would happen every other year. Now we, the 2020 summer conference it will happen. We're like just waiting with bated breath for it to happen in uh, June of 2022. And so um, those are some of the main um the main activities that that organization does. There's also recently been, uh, we're, we're starting up some special interest groups. So there's, I think there's three right now, uh, SIGs that people can join. So there's one on motivation specifically, there's one on self-determination theory, and there's one on, um, positive psychology. And so we're, we're, we, we have membership from all over the world. And it's also just like such a pleasure being involved with, uh, such a wonderful organization. Yeah. It's, it's really cool because, you know, as I started out, you know, doing, I did a master's in psychology and now I'm starting a PhD in education. A lot of my research was in language learning anxiety. And I'm always, you know, coming across the work of McIntyre and Gregerson and Duvalle. And, and then I found, I found out about this organization and they're all in this organization. And then I found out about this book series. I, I, I hope other mm-hmm. people are lucky enough to experience something like that in their research, I, I'm not really sure because I'm kind of stuck in my own world of research. Um, but mm-hmm. it's a really cool thing for people that are interested in the psychology of language learning. And a lot of the times when you're researching these things, you're going to come across kind of the same people. It's kind of like bumping into people at a party. And then you find out that they're mm-hmm. all kind of aligned within this umbrella and there's a book series. It's uh, it's really helpful for up-and-coming researchers. And... Um, it's just a really cool thing, and and I'm excited. I, I've talked to as many people I can I can in this organization, um, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you today. Right, certainly. Well, I will. I'll make it one more quick plug about it. Uh, we did reopen the abstract submissions for this summer conference because we've recently added. Um, an online uh, possibility for conference attendance this summer. So even folks who are not able to travel to Canada at the end of June this summer have the opportunity to uh, to attend the conference online and abstract submissions are still open. I'm just looking at the date until March 31st. And so you should submit an abstract. You should come to the conference. Why not? Well, unfortunately, this podcast might be released after that. I'm not sure yet, but um, as far okay. as... Okay, all as, right, well... As far as the conference, I did apply, and I was okay, accepted, okay. Um, uh-huh. and I was excited to go, but um, Air Canada canceled my flight, and uh, the window hmm. of opportunity to get to Nova Scotia from Japan was a, a kind of a small mm-hmm. one, um, so I've, mm-hmm. given, I've given up. Uh, it, it, it would have been a really tough trip anyway. 
um, to get to Nova mm-hmm. Scotia from Japan. But I, hopefully I can be involved in the hybrid aspect, the online portion. Right. Sure, certainly. And I think that's uh, like uh, several people that we've talked to. And, and this is one of the reasons why we decided to make this uh, hybrid possibility is that, you know, a lot of universities have limited funding right now because of different costs involved with the pandemic and, you know, mitigation strategies and all this. And so we wanted to have the conference open to as many people as possible. And with even with attendance with, to, to the hybrid uh, part of the conference, you'll have membership included with the conference fee for um, until for for. I, I don't know exactly the end date. I don't remember off the top of my head, but for you know a, a good a good bit of time. So I think I mean the hybrid version is going to be very good as well. And uh, by the time this episode is recorded, the episode with Tammy Gregerson should be up on the website, and she was excited about next year's conference. I mean, we don't know where that is yet, but. Um, I'm hoping next year's conference will be a little bit closer to Japan. That's that's my hope. So uh, it, it, if not this yeah. year, coming meeting everyone in person, I really hope uh, – I hope tw- from 2023, uh, it's back – did you say it's every every other year? It's every other year. So it would be in 2024. 2024, we, okay. We do know the location. We're super excited, but we're going to do the big reveal at the conference. Oh, so, great. Okay. Um, it's Yeah, we do have we do have a location. Yeah. Okay, great. I hope it's not Brazil. From from just for my own, uh... I, my lips are sealed. <laughs> okay, um, all right. So again, the the book that we are discussing today is the role of context in language learners' self development and motivation. And one of the cool things about a podcast, or you know, talking to people at conferences, unfortunately, now that they're they're canceled, is learning a little bit about the author and, and things you can learn about the author that aren't in the book. So. Uh, if you don't mind, I'd kind of like to hand the floor over to you for as far back as you'd like to go and kind of take us through your process through, you know, high school or university. And how did you end up getting to be an academic at this high level? And, and what, what brought you to this interest in the field? Hmm. Well, I mean, to go kind of way back, I, I did move around quite a lot um, as a, like as, as a kid with my family. Mm-hmm. We ended up during my um, like most like late elementary and high school years in Louisiana, which certainly uh, sparked the interest in learning French, which mm-hmm. is the language that I studied. Um, that we you know that we had a, we had a wonderful uh, French teacher in high school, Miss McKisson, who I'm still in contact with today. Um, we, when I got to, when I went to college, I didn't, you know, like these days students, I think have maybe like the opportunity to to interact with advisors on, um, like a very purposeful level where you Mm -hmm. sit down with an advisor and you talk about your career goals. We didn't, didn't really have that neither in high school nor when I was an undergrad, but I knew I liked French. Mm. I kept taking French classes. Um, I knew I liked painting and I was also like very interested in deaf habilitation in American sign language. And so I ended up, Mm. um, when I did a study abroad in France, when I got back, I realized I had enough credits to graduate with a French degree, uh, which was good because my scholarship was about to run out. So I had to graduate. Um, <laughs> and I ended up with a minor in painting and deaf habilitation. So, um, wow. that was kind of my first, you know, just like the love of language in general, like many, uh, degrees in language during that time period, um, the focus is mostly on literature. We didn't, 
have much in the way of linguistics or applied linguistics at my undergraduate institution, but um, I kind of always liked the technical aspect of language and the applied aspect of language, as well as looking at like more theoretical literature aspects. Um, and then I, for a, I had a break between undergrad and grad years. I was in France for a year doing an English uh, assistantship program in the south of France. And then I had a, a cultural ambassador scholarship from the Rotary Club where I spent six months in Costa Rica where I learned Spanish. I, I hadn't studied Spanish previously, but wow. I, I did after that six months period. And um, at that, I was applying to graduate schools from Costa Rica. I think I, I flew from actually from Costa Rica to Michigan to do interviews during I mean, during that six month period and I was there mm. and ended up at Michigan state, which I think was a really good fit for me. Um, and my variety of interest levels, uh, at Michigan state, I was, I started with a master's in theoretical linguistics. Mm. I then, I, but I really liked the applied nature of the TESOL program that Michigan state had to offer. And so I was doing a dual MA in uh, theoretical linguistics and TESOL. But I also really loved like working and thinking and conceptualizing things in languages other than English. So I started a third master's degree in Spanish literature. At some point, I said, Amy, like, get a hold of yourself. Like, you're doing three master's degrees at once. Like, you have to figure out, you know, what you want to do with your life. You can't just study forever. So um, at that point, the Michigan State had just uh, announced the, the launch of the Second Language Studies PhD program. Hmm. And so I applied to that program, and I, I found it to be the perfect combination of theoretical and practical. Um, and I was the first cohort of students in the SLS program and the first graduate of that PhD program. Wow. Wow. I mean, just thinking about your undergrad, it sounds like paradise, um, painting, reading French literature. Or did you, did you have, um, like a beret you were okay. wearing all the time? <laughs> I did. So I, well, I'm trying to think of when I bought my beret. I think I may have bought it when I was in, I think I, I have a beret from Poe, which is in the South of France, uh, which is a lovely black wool beret, which I still wear sometimes. Um, I had less of a chance to wear it in Florida when I was at the university of South Florida, but now <laughs> that I live in West Virginia with colder weather, I can pull out my, my black wool beret from Poe and, um, and, you know, happily wear it here. But yeah, it was, I mean, it was a very Id idyllic, I mean, wonderful time uh, during my undergraduate years of like of painting. And actually I will take this chance to mention, cause it's a nice segue. The cover of my book hmm. is a painting that I did. No way. And so, yeah, the, the arm holding the globe um, is a painting I did during my undergraduate studies. Uh, and there's kind of a long and complex story involved with that painting. It, it, it has some other parts that are not pictured. Um, if you're super curious about that, you can maybe ask me about that later, but it might take me a good five minutes to explain just the painting. So maybe if you run into me at a conference, you can ask me more about the painting on the cover of the book. Wow. That's, that's all right. So the book is the role of context in language learners, self-development and motivation, which we're going to get into mm -hmm. in a bit. So, all right. So you finish your PhD at Michigan state. Um, and then you're, then you go down to Florida. I, yeah, so I, I was hired as an assistant professor at the University of South Florida, which is in Tampa, mm -hmm. and I went there directly from yeah, my PhD program at Michigan State. So I started at USF in the fall of uh, 2009, and I started data collection 
that ended up being in this book in spring of 2010. So this book project actually kind of has a long and complicated um, like manner of becoming, I guess you could say. And so it, it was a, it was a 10 plus year project. Yeah. All right. Well, let's, let's get into it then. So what, what brought about the, what was, what was the impetus for this book? I mean, were you thinking about context and, you know, teacher selves or like what, 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 there's a lot of interesting, I, I feel like there's so many interesting things in this book and a lot of them in isolation could almost be a book. Um, what, what was your mindset of putting this all together? Did, like you said, uh, it took 10 years. Did, 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 was the finished product what you envisioned? I guess maybe that's the first question. Well, no. I mean, and so some, okay. And I will say <laughs> that starting on this, uh, like how I started collecting data for this project, I didn't imagine that it would necessarily become a book. Mm-hmm. And I didn't, well, let me tell you how I started. So um, in the spring of 2010 at University of South Florida, there were a group of teachers from around the world that were part of an IRICS fellowship program. And um, it was uh, the faculty who were kind of in charge of bringing these teachers here. And they were mostly English teachers, but there were a handful of also math and science teachers. And so it was a large group of um, teachers on the international spectrum that had that were coming to the University of South Florida for a period of several weeks to do this uh, professional development program. And mm-hmm. um, they were looking for mentors for these teachers. And I, you know, I, I like people. I like interacting. I like talking um, with people from a variety of different backgrounds. And so I volunteered to be a mentor. And so I, you know, was like, I did social activities with them, uh, I think I, at one one day I we, we, I taught canoeing um, and we did canoeing on the Hillsborough River with alligators and that was quite a nice. cultural experience. But through these different social activities, I soon came to realize that these teachers that had come from around this world, these beautifully multilingual teachers. Like they should be mentoring me. Like I shouldn't be mentoring them. I thought, oh my goodness, they have this wealth of experience. They have this wealth of knowledge. I need to record some of their stories. Like whoever is willing to talk to me, like I need to talk to them and record them and kind of I'll figure out what to do with this later. But like, I just know that I need to to have their stories. And so um, I quickly filled out an IRB, got IRB approval. And then anyone who was willing to talk with me, I did basically just, you know, had conversations and they weren't interviews in the traditional sense and that we didn't have a preset like order of questions, mm-hmm. but I really wanted them to, to tell me their kind of their, their life stories, their histories, their narratives um, about language learning. And so I, I started very broad and you know, I said I, I wanted to know they, they, the, the teachers that came were all English language teachers in their context, right. and um, I wanted to know a little bit about you know the role of English in school and society and business. Uh, what are the like opportunities your students have to speak English outside of the classroom? What about attitudes towards English? Um, we ended up getting into with, with most, if not all of them, we ended up getting into kind of like the political discourse around English and what does that mean from a like a governmental perspective and an attitudinal perspective when depending on who's president in the US context, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and just like a lot of 
you know, just fascinating conversations that I really could only include snippets of mm. as illustrative examples within the book. Um, and so these, these conversations like took like took winding twisty turns, like nothing was asked in order. Like I let the, um, the teachers that I was talking to kind of talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. And I would kind of follow up with some questions and prompts or things I thought about, um, as we were talking, um, many of them also, we ended up talking about languages other than English in their context. So I really like, like that know, part of the book, by the way. I, yeah. And that's one of my, that's been one of my major research, uh, foci as I've been going is not just focusing on one language, but the interactions of multiple languages. So what role does Russian have in Ukraine, which mm. certainly right now is super relevant, um, with everything that's going on, but you know, French in Senegal versus English in Senegal or like Russian in Estonia also came up uh, in conversation, uh, German and French in the context of Turkey, you know? And so these were just, like wonderful, beautiful conversations that then it was my task to figure out how to contextualize and how to put them in uh, sort of an organized, readable format that I wanted to be accessible to as many people as possible. Now, the recording process itself, was it all done face-to-face? Yeah, yes. All these interviews were done face-to-face. So we... Um, so when these teachers were at USF, um, I made appointments with them and we met wherever, like either in my office on campus or at a restaurant, or I went to where they were staying. Um, and then a couple of the participants, a handful of two of the chapters of Vietnam and Turkey were done with personal connections that weren't on the fellowship. And we also did these, um, face-to-face when I had a chance to, to interact with these folks as well. Do you, do you have an opinion about that, how it's, how it's changed? You know, a lot of people say, you know, the COVID era was, you know, very difficult for some aspects of research, but for other aspects of research, maybe more convenient. Um, do you think something's lost when you're doing these long-form interviews online? Well, so interestingly, so the article that you originally asked me about, which is the Don't Tell Me What to Do article, the mm-hmm. one about the anti-self and responding positively to challenges and those things, um, one of the participants in that uh, article, that this, and this was long before COVID and before Zoom, mm-hmm. uh, we did, I did a recording of, of that participant uh, via Skype. Um, which I, I think I explained to you before, I have a love-hate relationship with Skype, and it like oftentimes didn't work. When I, I think most people do. Whatnot, I, but, I, I joke. I think yeah. I'm the only one keeping Skype in the zeitgeist. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone's right. what? Well, Skype, huh? <laughs> What's that? It never works. <laughs> yeah. I love it. <laughs> so I, I, I do think that um, – I, I don't think that necessarily – I mean, well, there's kind of a – uh, an electricity that you get when you talk to people face to face. And mm-hmm. and you, I think you may have the capability to like play off of each other more, especially, well, I would say, especially at the beginning of the pandemic when people were, weren't really used to um, talking much like uh, and being recorded over like a video recording or mm. like an audio recording. I think now a lot of people are quite used to it, but also it depends on the re- the rapport and the relationship that you've already established with the potential participants. And so I, like I, even before the pandemic, because of the type of research I do, I did a lot of uh, uh, like a lot of my research was done um, like 
interviews, conversations, recordings, either over phone or over Skype at that time. Mm -hmm. And I've done a lot of uh, online questionnaire-based learning, uh, sorry, uh, questionnaire-based surveys that I have used in my research that I think now they're like a lot more popular perhaps, but I've been using them for years and years because I needed to be able to reach an audience um, of participants kind of worldwide. And I couldn't go to, you know, every university in Turkey that I wanted to go to, to collect data, right. I had to be able to have access to folks, um, uh, like that, where I couldn't be there face to face. So actually I think, I mean, like some of us have been doing this type of research for a while, that mm. these interviews happened to be face to face because I had the, uh, we were all in the same location and the same, you know, same area and I could go meet them wherever they needed to be. And I could, I could collect this data. Now, when you were organizing the data, I don't know a lot about qualitative research methods. That's something I'm, I'm interested in and I, I need to learn about more. Was there a software program that you used to help organize the data? Or how did you go about you know, putting it all together? No, I mean, so there are software programs. So you could use something like InVivo to help you organize qualitative data like this. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not. I... I, I mean, so the, the methodology that I used was uh, kind of like loosely based a content analysis. And it, you know, I was mainly, look, I wasn't looking for like specific words used or specific phrases or things like this, but I was looking for overarching themes. And so I did several levels of analyses, uh, kind of the old fashioned way where I read through the interviews. At first I was kind of like just, highlighting parts that seemed interesting to me. And that was like the very broad first step um, of how to do this. And then, you know, most of the stuff I had highlighted hadn't, like it didn't make it into the final manuscript. But I mean, I and then also taking into consideration, like a lot of the research I've done has been on multilingualism. It has been on motivation and specifically with the L2 motivational self system that I started um, it was it was just coming out like right after I finished my dissertation, so it wasn't part of my graduate work. But I very soon got interested in that framework um, in my early kind of academic career, and I said, "Well, I, I really just I want to focus on this concept of selves, but I want to really, really kind of zone in on the context and how the the context of these participants." influences the development of self. And I also really want to look at the idea of being a multilingual user of languages and teaching a language that you may not have grown up speaking and how that may be like, there's this nice interplay with that in context. And um, also, you know, like looking at these interactions of multiple languages. So, you know, I, I kind of like, I, I, even the other stuff that I, I found was really interesting, I kind of like set that aside and maybe I thought, well, maybe I'll come back to it later at some point. But I kind of, I focused, there was, there was so much of those themes that I've also already written about in other contexts with other participants that I, I focused in on those, on those topics. Yeah. It's, it's a really fascinating book. Um, it almost feels, it, you know, with COVID and not being able to travel, it almost satisfied some of my, urges to travel. I felt like I could, you know, you know, that yeah, I, even right. the idea of traveling, even just getting off the airplane and just smelling different air or I, I got that yeah. sense in this book. 
Um, I also was thinking about mm-hmm. other ideas for books for you to write, which I'm sure you'd love to hear. Um, <laughs> like I, mm. even thinking about your story, right? Like um, in France, uh, and then maybe coming back, or like like teaching teachers that end up living in that country and then teaching French in an elementary school, or or me being in Japan, mm-hmm. an ultimate goal for my own language learning development, which was something that came up in the book. I think one of the participants said, you know, language learning never stops, right? It never ends. So right, I definitely right, right, agree right. with that with right. Japanese. Jeez. Um, I, I always thought, wow, if one day I could be good enough at Japanese to teach Japanese, like what would mm-hmm. I, what, what would, I don't even know who I would be. Like I, I, I must, I think right. I would be a different person. There's so many different like th- that idea of because all the participants here were English teachers in their home mm-hmm. country, right? Right, or, that's right. Okay, and that and that for me was also like uh, that's why it, partly why this book took such a long time was that I'm not like I'm not a historian or a political science expert or mm-hmm. you know like trying to give justice to the context where these participants found themselves. Like I I had just had these vivid memories of like, I remember I was working on the Senegal chapter and Mm -hmm. it was really hard to find old references, older references talking about the sociopolitical context in Senegal and how kind of the language development happened. And like French is a colonial language, the role of English, like, uh, like Wolof and uh, Say and all these other languages, Pular. And I was like literally digging through boxes of old dusty maps in the basement of the library at USF because there was nothing online. And so, you know, each chapter would take me kind of months to read enough about the context that I would even feel comfortable enough trying to write something about it. So I was learning as I was writing. Um, And you know, like going through, I had these like stacks of these books where the the pages, it felt like they were almost crumbling, right? Like I was trying to go through and find enough historical knowledge to be able to to write a, a justifiable background. And I also would like to say, I, I because I'm not an expert in any of these contexts, I had, if I was able to get in touch with the, the teachers that I'd interviewed, se- several of the chapters were read by the participants. They gave additional information. They gave suggestions and comments. Um, Senegal, the, the, the participant from Senegal, the teacher from Senegal was really like quite helpful in that regard because it was, uh, it, the history was complicated and it was hard to find um maybe reliable information, me being in the U.S. So I would go back and forth with some of the participants. They would help me. They would give me additional references. They would email me PDFs, and I would incorporate those into the book. Um, and if some of the, the email addresses didn't work anymore that I had of the of the teachers, and some it seemed that they went through, but I couldn't get in touch with them. And so in that case, I found two to three um, content experts in those specific areas, whether it be um, folks that had you know, that were political scientists or literature experts, but had lived in the country or, you know, however we want to look at it, who also, you know, gave me extensive feedback on the accuracy of the kind of the context part um, of the chapters. And so that, that in part, like, like, as I said, each chapter took so long to write because I wanted to make sure I had it. I wanted to, I wanted to do justice to the context. I wanted to get it as accurate as I possibly could. Yeah, and um, at the time that we're recording this, again, I need to check our schedule. Maybe we're, we're talking a lot of a lot of times. 
it's funny. I got a comment about this podcast. It, it feels like the podcast is almost could be like a book on a shelf because we try not to talk mm-hmm. about the present moment, but because we're talking about some events in yeah, the present moment, yeah, yeah. this upcoming conference, sure. I'm going to talk to my, uh, Chris, who, who's the other person who does the rotating interviews. And maybe we can put this interview up, put this up on the schedule a bit because at the time mm-hmm. of recording this interview and at the time that I'm reading the book, you know, this conflict with Ukraine is happening. So naturally, sure, I skipped to that chapter. First. <laughs> I skipped to that right, chapter first. That's right. And in fairness uh, to you and what you just said, you did kind of you did kind of clarify or or make that note that you know going through the entire history of Ukraine and Russia and Estonia is beyond the scope of yeah. this book. But mm-hmm. and then after the but, I thought you did a really good job of giving us a history and and giving uh, like you said. I, I taking us through that process of going through, you know, the boxes and, and, and the months I can imagine. I mean, when you, when you clarify and you, you make that, you know, I, I, don't, I can't think of the word for it. Um, but then after the, but there was a lot of work that you did. And mm-hmm. it, at times I, I must, it must've been kind of overwhelming because again, you're writing all of these different, all of these, a single chapter could have been a book. Right, if you're going to go into the history right. of, the, of the languages right. and the conflicts that have happened and such, yeah, certainly. And that's but that's what was also invigorating for me. Um, but I, you know, it was it probably if I would have thought about the magnitude of the project when I started it, I, I may not have started it. And I don't necessarily recommend that like pre tenure faculty kind of embark on a project like this. And I, I ended up. Actually, so I started it, imagine this, I started it when I was a first year assistant professor Mm. and it was published when I was already a full professor. Wow. So it took, it took that long, like the, the 10 year process, right? Like, so I went from like assistant, I got tenure, I was associate professor. I was hired in here at WVU as a full professor and I still wasn't finished with the book. So it was just this kind of, it was kind of a massive project, but I tried very hard to break it up into manageable sized pieces. So, you know, like I kind of treated each chapter as if it were like one at first, like one individual, like essence or one individual um, entity. And then when I kind of got drafts of all the chapters, then I could look as the book as a whole, but it took me a long time to get to that point. And there were some chapters I ended up cutting just because I didn't feel the data was rich enough. And when I started looking at the conversations and then like trying to fit everything together, I thought, you know, I just have to make some choices in these set of, these set of um, conversations with the, these specific individuals seem to flow together the, the nicest. One of the reasons I started this podcast is I was in one stage of my research, uh, totally different than this. Um, and I was, I literally got lost in citations. I found myself getting distracted uh, where you'd get on mm-hmm. one, t- you'd be re- you'd read one article and that would lead you to another article, to another article. And then you're like, wait, wait, where am I? Like, where did I even start? Did that, did, did you have a mentor to help you? Because I imagine if you start, you're, you're digging through the boxes and you get, you're on the map and then, you know, people's minds wander, right? Um, and if you're an inquisitive mind, it continues to wander, right? Mm-hmm. Did you did you have steps in place to keep you on track and not get overwhelmed? I did. Well, and so I didn't have anyone helping me with this project per se. I will say an, another kind of complicated aspect of this, and maybe again, like kind of kind of a 
<laughs> kind of interesting that I decided to take this on, but um, I'm primarily trained as a quantitative researcher. So almost <laughs> all of my other publications are like like larger amounts of data, quantitative analyses, and I feel very comfortable in that zone. So like methods-wise, this project was also really pushing the envelope for what I felt comfortable doing. And so mm. I did, um, I had a, a couple of different colleagues that helped me understand more fully the the beauty of, of qualitative inquiry. Um, one of my colleagues, I published a, a, an early article on the ultimotivational self system where the anti auto self was born, who's Dr. Camilla Vasquez at the University of South Florida, is a, is a fabulous qualitative researcher. And that article that I wrote with her was the first time I wrote anything qualitative ever. Mm. And so, but working with her through that process and um, her, you know, like, you know, sitting in her backyard in St. Pete, drinking a glass of wine and talking about, you know, narrative data and how to analyze it and how to write about it, I think was was almost a starting point, really the, really the first time that I'd ever thought about doing something qualitative. And so um, something I, a piece of advice, you know, when, when folks are asking me, like, how, what's your process? Like, how do you write? Um, I tend to make like very small manageable goals for myself. And mm. if I have only an hour one day to work on research. And this is even more true now that most of my job is administrative. I don't have um, nearly as much time as I used to, to work on uh, research, but like I will make very specific goals for myself to accomplish every time I have like 30 minutes to an hour. So I may say, I want to read two articles. I want to highlight the relevant pieces and I want to pull out those quotes and put them in a word document. And that may be all I can do for a day because then I have to go do other activities. And so the way that I, I always write, and it was like kind of on a very large scale for this book project is that I like, so we can keep, keep with the Senegal example since we were talking about like digging through dusty maps of like Senegal, but <laughs> I would have this like stack of books from Senegal. And I said, okay, so today I have an hour this morning to work on this. And so I said, my goal is to get through, like to skim this chapter of this book on Senegal. Um, it, I couldn't like highlight and copy and paste because it was a book, not a PDF, but um, to like put sticky notes in it and to type out certain sentences that I think are really going to be important to what I'm going to write about. And so by the end of the hour, I might have a couple pages of just, just quotes. I mean, mm. only quotes, like no contextualization, no discussion, nothing. And then I might do that for some time in that context. And then um, because I'm a very tactile type of person, I might print out all those quotes that I typed. I will cut them into strips mm. and I'll start arranging them in piles on the floor or on my desk or on my bed to kind mm. of group the ideas together from the variety of sources. And then like I say, okay, that's all I have time to do today. Now, tomorrow I have 30 minutes from 8 o'clock to 8.30 to work on research. So what am I going to do? I'm going to take one pile of strips of paper, and I'm going to make two paragraphs out of it. Mm. And that's all the time I have to do. And so I kind of go about writing in that way. So no goal seems too big. Mm. Um, it, it just kind of comes together in a manageable way. And I started this strategy, a very similar strategy, when I was doing my honors thesis as an undergrad student. I, I was working on a translation of a French book into English, which was also kind of like a big task. And I assigned myself numbers of pages to do every day. Mm. And I took breaks on weekends. I took, when I was living in Paris, I took the week off when my parents came to visit, my sister came to visit. 
Um, I didn't assign myself any pages. And when those pages were done, I stopped. But like, no matter how tired I was and no matter how much other stuff I had to do, I said, I've got to translate these three pages today because otherwise I'm going to fall behind and I'm not going to finish. And so I kind of approach all my big projects with bite-sized, manageable tasks. You said you had an, you did an honors thesis. Um, where, where did you do that? I was at um, Texas Christian University in Fort Worth, Texas, and I uh, I was studying abroad in Paris for the year because I could study French and painting simultaneously, so that's where I wanted to be. That's and because... um, I worked with a professional translator while I was in France, and we picked a book together, and she helped walk me through how to work on like the art of translation. Because I'm, you know, I'm an American um, like yourself, and so doing these interviews with people. The, the the idea of the honors thesis, like for people that don't know, is you know you uh, some people if they have a good enough honors thesis for undergrad, they can almost skip the masters and go to PhD. Was that that was something? I, maybe I was out of it because when I was doing my undergraduate, I was studying music. I was totally unaware of academia. Mm-hmm. Is that mm-hmm. is that more common outside of America? Because I I I had never even heard of that before. And, and, and is it the same thing if your your honors thesis for undergrad you could have skipped the masters or is it different in america well no because well i I, well a few things first of all the my french degree as an undergrad wasn't what i studied in graduate school precisely so i went from like a literature kind of background to uh, like more linguistics applied linguistics as graduate studies and so and that wasn't even on my mind i just knew that i wanted to do i was in the honors program Mm. and the to finish it, I needed to do a thesis. I, th- I think there may have been a different option, but I don't even remember what it was at this time. But but interestingly, my my two. So I had three. I remember vividly. I had three members on my committee. Two of the members hated my honors thesis huh. because they were literature professors who said that translation was not an academic pursuit, hmm. and so. It was kind of my first, and then I had the, the third faculty member who was an English, interesting English faculty, but was very much aware and very um, good at and like thinking about and helping students with kind of topics in translation and knew it as an academic subject more so than the French faculty. It was kind of my first interaction of like, oh, holy cow, like I'm a really good student. And <laughs> I mean, objectively, right? Like I got A's, like I did everything I was supposed to do, but I felt so strongly about this topic I wanted to do for my honors thesis. And really late in the game, I found out that the French faculty that I, that were on my committee didn't really agree with the topic at all. And it became a kind of a, well, I'll say it's my my first lesson in academia. I survived. I think mm-hmm. I'm stronger for it. I think everything turned out well. Um, I, I don't know that that concept of honors thesis is very common in um, other countries as much as it is in the U.S. I, I do think like honors programs and universe in the U.S. context are. Um, I, I don't. I, I mean, I'm sure like similar types of programs exist in other uh, in other countries. I, but I think it's really like a, a popular kind of thing to do in the U.S. context. I will also say that unbeknownst to me, that may have been the first time that my anti ought to self was born when mm. I responded to this challenge of like this isn't an academic pursuit. You shouldn't like look at language for its technical aspects and for like the, the, the beauty of the language in terms of like the linguistic forms and the 
like inner workings of going from one language to another. Um, but I really wanted to do it and I pursued it anyway. And I think that was kind of like bucking the system in a way that I've now like years later, uh, frequently researched. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great lesson. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, if if anyone that's planning on, uh, getting into academia, there's definitely going to be some challenges along the way. Um, but yeah, like you said, hopefully they make you stronger and, or reinforce some of your, attitudes. Um, again, the book that we're discussing today is The Role of Context in Language Learners' Self-Development and Motivation. Just a couple more questions for you. Um, g- getting back to that idea of you know, so much content and the way that you organized it and streamlined it for the readers, one of the things I liked about the book is in the beginning of each chapter, you you give us sort of five sentences, what, what we might take away mm-hmm. from the chapter. Mm-hmm. And then within the chapter, sure. mm-hmm. you have these dialogues, uh, and then you unpack the dialogues for us, which is, which is really nice. Where, where did you get that idea? Is that something that you came up with or was that a publisher idea? Uh, the key points, you know, embarrassingly, I don't remember whose idea that was. Like <laughs> ha- starting the chapter with key points is an organizational mechanism. But I, I do know that it was not in the first draft I did of the book. And I, mm. I mean, I could, I could go back and look at emails and try, like try oh, to figure okay. out maybe, maybe, maybe ask, uh, ask Sarah or ask Laura, right. Like people that were working with me on the book to like figure out where, you know, how did that come to be? I do think it really does help um, point the reader in the right direction, having these key points. Um, the, the quotes at the beginning of each chapter was my idea, I know, and was there from the very beginning. And so sometimes my research task every day was like finding an appropriate quote, um, in the, one of the native languages of the teacher in the text, like a quote from that context printed in that language and then a translation in English. Um, cause I, I did think that set the tone of all the chapters for the kind of the multilingual aspects that, that we were going to be discussing now in terms of like putting forth the dialogue and unpacking the dialogue, that was, that was my initiative, so to speak. And I did it in a way that was also a purposeful choice, which is different than I would typically write, particularly if it's a like a, a quantitative piece, certainly. Mm. But I tried to intertwine the snippets of dialogue with contextual information. Mm. And so it was less of like, here's the background. Now I'm going to give you excerpts of the dialogue, and now I'm going to discuss it. I tried to make it like a very readable, intertwined um sort of situation where that it like I, I did talk about certainly like the methodology and those things in the very first part of the book before getting into the context specific chapters. But really once we got into the chapters, I, I started with some like sociopolitical information and like the history of languages and how languages were used in that context. But then really quickly I would jump in with something that one of the teachers had said. Maybe it was a like they said something, I said something, they said something kind of thing, like maybe three little excerpts. But then I would give more information about like why that excerpt was important and why like perhaps I had chosen to pull that out of the, our discussions and put it in the book. And so it was, you know, and it kind of, things moved around a bit, right? Like I would write a chapter and then I would look and I didn't really like the way it flowed. So I may have like changed the order. Um, there was definitely not a defined structure for each chapter. So the chapter Mm. on Vietnam, the structure is very different from the chapter on Turkey because 
the way the conversations flowed were different and the way that like I could lead up to this information provided by the teachers also was very different. And so I tried to make it as natural and free flowing as possible while giving the readers like adequate information about context. Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot here for maybe the last question, um, which I'm sure sure you're not going to like. Uh, What was your favorite chapter in the book? Oh, I, I can't tell you that. <laughs> that. That secret will go to my grave. That's a tough one, um, isn't it? They're all like your. These are all like your children here. Well, well, I think so. Each chapter, I think, has I have favorite parts of each chapter, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, and and certainly, so I will tell you that the first chapter I try, that I sat down to write was the chapter on Turkey, mm. and that is because I knew the most about Turkey out of all the contexts. Like I, oh. I'm the most familiar with it. My life partner is from Turkey. Uh, we've, you know, been married for a number of years. I have friends from Turkey. I visit re- like very frequently. I've read a lot about it, on, like both for professional reasons and personal reasons. And so I thought, like, that's the chapter that I'm going to tackle first because that will let me know if I can even do this project or not, right? Mm. And so um, that chapter has quite a lot of, like, I guess, like maybe the most personal feelings involved. Um, and interestingly, um, some of my friends and family, my Turkish friends and family, like they disagree with the way some of the things were discussed. And so we had like kind of heated like mm-hmm. discussions and arguments about how I was writing that chapter. Um, and it ended up, you know, at the end I said, look, I mean, I know like we all have our opinions, but I also have to present, uh, like all sides of an issue. I, I can't. You know, like when talking about Ataturk, right? Like there's definitely very like strong positive feelings by my Turkish friends and family about Ataturk and how like Turkish was brought up in terms of language prestige and all this. But it, in some ways it came at the expense of other languages in Turkey. And it was it, that was a, a tough discussion with some of my friends and family when writing that chapter specifically. But in the end, you know, I, we, we discussed in a way that I could then present the points and information in a way that was kind of as neutral as possible, yet giving the the readers of the book the, the information needed. So I think Turkey was simultaneously the easiest chapter to write and the hardest chapter to write. Um, but like, I love, oh my goodness, I love all the chapters. Like I love like going back and looking at the Senegal chapter. I think that one has the most discussion of interactions of the variety of languages in that context, which to me like really pulls me. Um, I also love the, the different concepts that are discussed in the Vietnamese chapter, mm. like it, it, the, 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 the voice of the teacher in that chapter is, is really distinct and different, I think, than some of the other voices. And so I, I love listening to that interview and going back and reading some of that information and I could go on and on. I mean, there's, there's, pieces of every chapter that I love. Um, and every time I go back and take a look at it, I'm just like, man, these, these teachers are amazing. I mean, again, like going back to the beginning kind of of this podcast, when you're asking how I got involved, like every time I I'm working with this data and I'm looking at the book, I'm reminded of the facts. Like I was asked to mentor these teachers and really they should have been the ones mentoring me and they have through our conversations and then through the end result of this product. Yeah. I think anyone who reads this book, you know, a thousand people read this book. I think you can get a thousand different takeaways. One of the big takeaways for me, someone who's lived abroad, um, is this idea that came up a couple of times where 
people's attitudes towards English is heavily dependent on whoever is the American president at the time. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Sure. And as when you're living abroad as an American, it's, and actually, you know, just thinking about the situation that's as the time we're recording this with Ukraine, I actually feel really bad for Russian expats at this time. Cause I know there's been some, some stories right. about discrimination of NHL hockey players and stuff, because it's just so tough when you're an expat because if something if, if if the government is doing something that widely is you know thought of as unpopular, people kind of look at you as that vehicle towards that person in some ways. Um, and That's so right. I, that That's doesn't right. really you didn't really go too deep into that angle, but I I definitely thought I thought oh gosh that's so true. It's just it's yeah. just so much more comfortable when things are sort of stable if you're the, the expat, right? So that you, that that right. came up in a that's couple right. of the participants. Yeah, that's why I remember uh, when I was living in France, uh, Bush was president, and it was I was lived there during the second uh, election of Bush, which, you know, like people have whatever political opinions they may have. But I remember um, people, you know, how could you like reelect Bush or whatever? And like, I mean, you know, we're a whole country of people. It wasn't just me. But also then right after that, it was when Jean-Jacques Le Pen was almost elected. And then at the very end wasn't. Um, and certainly like more recently in the news, uh, his daughter has been kind of up and rising. And so at that moment, I got my revenge, right? They could say, well, how could you almost tell like Jean-Jacques Le Pen? But um, in any case, I, I also hope that when people are reading through this book and like uh, like understanding the the points I was trying to pull out about multilingual teachers and how so, oftentimes I would say the multilingual aspect of of not only teachers but individuals in general really isn't valued and and unfortunately oftentimes in the American context is seen as almost a deficit because no linguistic system that a multilingual speaker has is identical to someone else's linguistic system because these systems interact, right? So mm -hmm. I think like the concept of linguistic racism and how it affects um, our school systems, how it affects our society, and how it affects those who are teaching languages that they may or may not have grown up speaking, I think uh, hopefully is also a topic that uh, was pretty salient to people when they're they're reading the book. I wrote a, a blog about that that's posted through the Multilingual Matters website about linguistic racism and how I, I'm trying to use this book as a vehicle to raise awareness to the consistent racism that, for example, in the U.S., international students and faculty might face, um, or you know, folks in society who may sound different than people in their uh, specific discourse community and how we really need to uh, find mechanisms to change that racism. All right. Well, the book is The Role of Context in Language Teachers' Self-Development and Motivation. Any any last thoughts? I um, <clears throat> I think we hit a lot of topics. Uh, I just I, I don't know how you did this book. Uh, also, I don't know how you're doing three jobs. It sounds like you're a very efficient, <laughs> high-motivated person. Uh, any, any final thoughts about the book or advice for up-and-coming researchers? And I don't think so. I think we covered a, a variety of different topics in the book. I'm happy if, you know, people have questions about it to to shoot me an email and I'll answer them to the best of my ability, you know, understanding that you may ask me questions I don't know the answer to. Um, for, for folks who are maybe just starting on the research process, like I really encourage goal setting and biting off like tiny pieces of the project, accomplishing those goals, and then having those goals lead up. Um, to the bigger final project. That has helped me 
immeasurably in every aspect of everything I've done in academia. So again, the book was The Role of Context in Language Teachers' Self-Development and Motivation. Dr. Amy Thompson, thank you so much for coming on Lost in Citations. You're welcome. Pleasure to be here. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.